This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Candice. Just jumping in here before we begin the episode. This is a sponsored content episode by Talaria. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me, your financial podcast where we explore the markets, investable ideas and strategies, and of course, chat to industry experts to help you manage your wealth. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Thanks for tuning in. Now, today we're joined by Hugh Selby-Smith, the co-CEO of Talaria Global Equity Fund, who has over 25 years experience in equity markets, investing in Europe, the US and Australia. Hello and welcome to The Global View on this Wednesday. For more on uh, what's going on at a macro level and how that is informing investment decisions, joining us now is uh, Talaria Capital CEO, Hugh Selby-Smith. I'm speaking with Hugh Selby-Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer at Talaria Asset Management. Welcome, Hugh. Hello, James. Now, a little bit more about Talaria Capital. For over 18 years, Talaria Capital in their global equity fund has taken a high-conviction, value-biased approach to construct a portfolio of high-quality, large-cap companies from around the globe. Since 1880, so really winding back the clock here, the S&P 500 index has had three decades, being the 1910s, the 1930s and the naughty 2000s, where there's been no capital growth, whereas income is always a component of the total return. So no capital growth, just income. So that's really interesting insights as we head into this conversation. You will hear Hugh explain what high quality actually means to Talaria and why income plays such an important part in the fund. That's because Talaria's unique integrated investment approach or process, they do two things. They combine fundamental research and stock implementation via put options to really harness the benefits of consistent income generation and capital appreciation to grow the investor's wealth over time. So we're going to really deep dive into their process. But before we do all of that, a quick reminder, guys, our chat today is not considered personal advice, even though we are registered financial advisors at Shore and Partners. As always, please note this podcast and content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Important to remember that everything we're chatting today is based on facts known at the time, being the 25th of October, 2023. So the disclaimer's done and dusted. We've set the scene and the tone. Here is our call with you. Hi, Hugh. Hello. Hello. We are so excited to have you on the show. So welcome officially to Talk Money to Me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you both. So I guess we were really excited to get you on the show today because the data coming out of the US is really keeping us all busy. You're in the markets, we're in the markets, and I'm sure there's a lot going in your head. And that's why we wanted to chat to you about the global economy and in which parts of the global market, you know, you're deploying capital for the fund. But before we do all of that, Hugh, can we take a moment and just 
set the scenes for our listeners. You know, our conversation today has a backdrop of climbing bond yields, interest rate anxiety, I'm calling it, global tensions really with Gaza, the VIX is rising, etc., etc. The list goes on. So we're all nervous. I guess, what's your take on the current state of markets in the global economy as we're chatting today? Well, the first thing I'd say is um, as a bottom-up fundamental investor, you know, driven by the the opportunity uh, that we see through our, our value lens, there's a lot of assets globally that are relatively expensive. So I think that's got to be a starting point because the longer your duration of investment, the more that's really going to drive the returns that, that you can expect. So I think keep that front and centre. I think the second key thing is from a macro perspective, um, we've had seven business cycles since the Second World War. So at Telaria, we're not in the business of forecasting, but we are keen students of history. And there's nothing as of today to suggest that the lagged impact of monetary policy, which started around 19 months ago, is having any different effect than it has in the previous seven business cycles. So what I mean by that is that there's a whole lot of statistics that are, and data releases that your listeners probably get some of or all of, they fall into three buckets, right? They're lagging indicators, coincident indicators and leading indicators. And the lagged impact of monetary policy, as I said, is typically around about 18 months. We had the first interest rate um, rise 19 months ago. So the leading indicators are suggesting nothing different to the previous seven business cycles. And therefore, I think um, people should be positioning for a continued deceleration in the global economy. And the reason that markets are interested in that is, of course, the knock-on impact to corporate profits. So I think my big picture would be that earnings expectations are too high and that we're in a phase of the market where it's probably more about preservation of capital in real terms because we do have an inflationary backdrop, obviously, rather than necessarily about absolute high returns that perhaps um, some of the listeners have got used to over the last decade. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think on your point, you did mention inflation. So can we just look at and switch to, I mean, do you think, Powell? has done enough there or is there more to go? Well, the way that we think about that is the decision to hike or otherwise will ultimately come down to two related factors, okay? Wage costs and service inflation. Now, both are lagging indicators, just going back to what I was talking about before, and the Fed tends to focus on lagging indicators when setting policy, which (laughs) explains a lot if you've been in the markets over the last 25 years. So, We do have some excellent tools to forecast those those indicators. Now, the lion's share of services inflation is rent inflation. Now, that's set to decrease. And I'm talking really about the global developed um, economies. And with slower hiring and fewer workers quitting to take big pay rises elsewhere, wage growth is set to slow further as well. So we're simply running out of places to find high inflation uh, in aggregate. Now, policymakers are currently going to great lengths in their public comments to stress the interest rates will need to stay higher for a prolonged period to ensure inflation continues its slow descent. But experience suggests markets may need to price in more cuts and sooner as the urgent focus turns from high inflation to flagging growth. So on average, just bear in mind, the Fed only waits about six months between its last hike and its first cut. 
Now, the outlier was the 15-month pause between the GFC, which, you know, let's face it, the Fed probably wishes it had handled differently in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, those are some really interesting facts and it's quite good to hear when you are in the equity market. I mean, right now, though, Hugh, do you think bond yields are really sending a warning to Washington? I actually heard a really interesting comment from the former CBO director, Douglas Holtz-Eakin. He basically said, if the bond market is starting to decipher more accurately the effective fiscal position of the US, then we're in trouble. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you're talking my language there, Felicity. Um, there's a couple of things I'd say in that longer term, outside of the cyclical, which is that kind of you know business cycle that we were talking about at the start. And I think there's two things on our mind. Clearly, the level of debt globally in developed market economies, there's no sense that that is, is going to do anything other than continue to rise. Okay, so using those CBO, the Congressional Budgetary Office, you know, forecasts, we're talking about Um, the fiscal gap. So the difference between the total tax take and the promises that have been given to its citizens in America, for example, is going to be about 7% of GDP come 2040. To put that in context, that would require a 40% increase in the tax take, or you're going to have to obviously, you know, not provide some of the promises that you've, you've made to your citizens. Okay, so I do think that the bond market, if you think about 10-year treasuries, you know, you go out to 2033, it's not that far from 2040. You know, and the fiscal deficit is rising about 5% per annum on their estimates um, in the central case every year until the early, you know, for the next decade. So I do think there's a plausible case to be made that investors in US treasury markets are questioning, you know, the money that they're going to be paid back, what's going to be the, the worth of that in real terms. So that's the first thing. I do think that the second key thing as well is that while five-year break-even inflation forecasts are about 2.5% today for the next five years, are about 2.5% five years ago, and they're about 2.5% 10 years ago, aren't very different. The spread that people are requiring on bonds is about 250 basis points higher now. And I do think that there's some questioning about that the range of outcomes of inflation going forward is going to be much wider. And I don't think it's about forecasting what inflation is going to be. It's about thinking, hey, over the last 20 years, what's it going to look like over the next 10 years? And you've got three things that mean on the margin inflation could well be higher. And the first of them is that we had about 350 million people enter the global workforce from Eastern Europe. And of course, China on top of that, which is about 500 million. So labor is relatively tight globally. We're not going to have that big tailwind. Clearly, decarbonisation is a theme and uh, and a focus for a lot of governments and citizens, and that is going to require extensive investment um, as we move through the energy transition. And the third key thing is because of rising geopolitical tension globally, corporates are reimagining their global supply chains. And so they're certainly moving to multiple sources of the goods and services that they need to produce um, their own products. And of course, on the margin, that means that's more inflationary rather than disinflationary. So I think there's two big drivers there. What money am I going to get paid back in? And on the margin, there's some very credible reasons to expect that inflation going forward will be higher than we've seen over the last 20 years. Yeah, which is, I think we're all stuck in la-la land and fantasy land of the last you know decade plus since the GFC where money was cheap and and you're right it's structurally very different this next sort of five to ten years as we look forward so with that in mind higher inflation going forward which is tougher on businesses generally let's think about earnings now so 
before before we look at the global economy, you know, we know that the world's most important, arguably, index is the S and P five hundred. So that multiple we've been watching, you know, is is quite high, like sitting around thirty, thirty one times. And it's only been, you know, more expensive in a period of 140 years of about 5%. So it's looking frothy, if I can say that term. And if, if we look at the US equities right now, like it's got a lot of disparity there. So it's all about the Magnificent Seven, as we keep hearing. Like, what's your take on it? Like, is do we need more falls in the multiples to come back to reality, do you think, moving forward? Well, the first key thing I'd say is that um, the US equity market, when you talk about that Schiller PE of sort of north of 30, we've really only had a couple of periods where it's been commensurate or higher with that. So let's go back to the end of the last millennium. It was around about the same level, okay? And if you go from the last millennium to today, including dividends, you've got about 6.5% nominal per annum return. Okay, so that's a pretty good indicator, right? You're sort of saying, well, but you needed to to end at that same all-time high multiple to get that six and a half. Uh, So, you know, that was including all the earnings growth and the the buybacks and obviously falling interest charges and tax rates. and and So I think that frames it pretty well in terms of the expectation. The big difference in the late, very, very late 90s was that the market Schiller PE was dominated by the top couple of deciles. And there was a whole range of stocks in the bottom two or three deciles of the market that were extremely cheap. And then subsequently, obviously, the value came through as, as emerging markets and commodities and so forth. The, old, the so-called old economy stocks obviously had their moment in the sun um, for, for nearly a decade. That is different to today, Candice, where actually yeah. each decile, if you look at things like very blunt instruments of valuation like EV sales, how much am I being asked to pay for a unit of sales are actually much higher at every decile except the very top decile. So this idea that it's just the Magnificent Seven on valuation is simply not true. Actually, the Magnificent Seven of back in the day of late 90s was much higher than the Magnificent Seven are today in aggregate if you look at a multiple of sales and, and, and certainly on a basis of profitability. So, no, I think that's not true that, you know, the rest of the market's really cheap if you take out um, the Magnificent Seven. What the Magnificent Seven are is they've been dominating the returns and holding up the aggregate index. So if you look at the equal weighted index in the S&P year to date, including dividends, that's down over 2%. So, you know, it's really about these seven very large mega cap um, weightings in the S&P that have actually had tremendously strong share price appreciation over the course of this year, um, leading the index in absolute terms to look like it's actually had a reasonable year. But the average stock um, is, as I said, down 2% if you just put the top 500 companies and you took an equal weighting in your portfolio of each. Wow, Hugh, those are some really interesting insights there. So now that we're talking about valuation, you're obviously a global fund manager looking for good value assets. Firstly, in your opinion, what is good value? Our approach to value, and I think most value managers true to label are very similar. So what we really do is we're trying to come up with the estimate of the amount of cash that can come off a business in a normalised environment, but crucially it's off the existing asset base. That in effect means we're not prepared to pay for growth. Now, growth can be a very important component of valuation quite clearly, um, but it's a relatively weak forward factor. The hit rate is very low because obviously you extrapolate into the future and the growth doesn't really transpire, whereas we're not paying for the growth because that would show up in the asset base if we were prepared to. 
you know, and that could be tangibles or intangibles. And that's really what makes us a, uh, a value manager and sort of stylistically we align very strongly with that as well as philosophically. Um, but it's that component where we're not prepared to trust in the efficiency of forecasting about, you know, inherently un- unknowable future to be able to pay for growth. Now, if it transpires that we own something on behalf of our clients and then, and this is why value investing over the long term has worked, is that then there's a reappraisal of the prospects and you get a, a positive re-rating as actually other investors start to to ascribe a, an element of growth and they'll start paying for that. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So where are you actually seeing in the global economy good opportunities right now? Yep. So we're, as I said, you know, just reiterating, we're a bottom-up investor. We never sit there and say, oh, Switzerland looks cheap. Let's go and find a Swiss <laughs> stock or, you know, consumer staples, given the backdrop that we've been discussing at the start of the show, um, makes a, a, is a sensible place to be in this environment. That's absolutely not what we do. So we're looking um, in every sector and in every region constantly so that we un- don't unwittingly create a sector or country bias. And, you know, I really appreciated the show on, on behavioural biases that you guys had yes. very recently. And, you know, a lot of our process, we try to engineer them out and limit them as much as we can. The number of ideas that are coming through, I could characterise them by, you know, over the last 18 to 24 months and more recently, we continue to, to debate potential ideas in Japan. You know, we came into the the start of the year, 17% of the portfolio is in Japan. I think, you know, five years ago, that would have been about uh, 1%. We've actually decreased our weighting to Japan slightly because we've exited an idea or, or a position there. But it's really outside of the US is showing more ideas. But the honest truth, you know, going back to the question about our process and the definition of value, you know, whole economy profits as a percentage of GDP are pretty much near record levels. We are operating on a normalised level of returns that one should should expect, you know, fully taking into account all the needs of a business. And therefore, it would be funny if we were finding a tremendous amount of kind of ideas if corporate profitability is so elevated relative to what has previously been the normalised uh, environment. So idea generation is relatively slow in the team at the moment compared to, certainly compared to 2020, for example. So I couldn't characterise it as one area in particular, but Japan still has a relatively high level of ideas coming for socialisation in the team. That makes a lot of sense how you're saying, you know, you've got a lot of ideas, but you're patient capital, right? Because of the state of play. And I think that's where I found it really interesting that the fund, you know, had about 20 or so percent in cash. That's quite a high number. So we'll get to that a bit later. But I just want to ask, you know, thoughts on China, if, if you can give us any insight into is it a no-go zone for you? You know, what's what are your thoughts there for Chinese economies and, and equities? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting segue where we we're talking about kind of developed market economies, um, unsustainable level of debt relative to the promises that have been made to the citizens. China's got a very different debt issue where it's grown immeasurably since the GFC. I mean, it had much lower debt than the US and now it's got much higher debt, not that much later, right? I mean, you know, we're only talking about 15 years later. And they're in a situation of contending with a debt deflation. So what is a debt deflation? It's effectively where um, falling asset prices leaves debt unable to be serviced, okay? And so then what happens is, of course, people, you know, it leads to people selling assets to pay down the debt, which further depresses asset prices. 
And you get in this virtuous cycle. And, you know, this was effectively some of the worst moments in the 20th century economically were, were debt deflations. Now, there, from our point of view, China's in the situation where whatever they do domestically in terms of policy, it doesn't actually really help because, of course, they've got a fixed exchange rate. Now, you go back 15 years ago, they had huge positive capital flows. You know, there was every corporate wanted to invest, but also they were making huge trade surpluses and repatriating the money. Whereas at the moment, that's stopped, partly because of kind of what's going on in global trade and that re-engineering of supply chains. And therefore, every time they say, you know, loosen monetary policy in China, they actually have to spend more of that liquidity just to hold the exchange rate. So there is only one way out of that. And that is that the exchange rate will have to move to a floating from a fixed exchange rate. Right. That's really interesting. So I think the timing on that is anyone's guess. Yeah. But that's not theory. That's just simply the maths. Um, and it's interesting, you know, the, the remember is really weakened pretty significantly over the last sort of nine months. But there's all this focus where, you know, they'll have a policy response domestically, but it really doesn't impact kind of the market's view because I think they recognise all this liquidity is constantly getting sucked out to hold the peg. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of interesting that also he's recently made his first visit to the China's central bank since he became president a decade ago. So I think that's quite interesting, you know, what's going on. He's obviously, there's an increased focus on kind of shoring up the economy and financial markets over in China. So I think that could be positive. Well, it is, but I think, you know, there's two things. If he, if, if there's not, because I mean, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of his economic history, and of course, um, you know, they would be very aware of how to reflate. I mean, you know, the, the US broadly did a good job of reflating after the GFC, for example, and and so they can have two choices: either they can put through their citizens a tremendously awful period of of economic hardship, you know, which would put a lot of strain on on all sorts of things in society, including obviously the political structure. Or they can choose to reflate, and by that they will have to to um, let the exchange rate go. Okay, well I love that. That's like a mini prediction. I love it um, in terms of you know them deflating and moving to floating. So let's park China for now, and looking at your global fund. As of the end of September, it returned 7.53% per annum since inception, which your inception date dates back to 2008. So that's a fantastic return when you look at it in comparison to the markets. Looking at the past year, for example, the fund returns 17.66%, which is an outperformance to the S&P 500, which returned about 16%. Well done, Hugh, to your team. Because for me, I think what's a really standout performance, you know, we always look at inception, but we know the year of 2022 was horrendous, right? And your fund was actually in positive territory, up 8.28% for the calendar year versus the S&P 500 index was down about 18%. A lot of asset classes were were down. Everyone was running to the hills in 2022. So my question here is, how did you manage a positive return in that calendar year of 2022? Well, let me first give you the big philosophical kind of reason that we were able to do that. And then why don't I sort of dig into some actual numbers and (laughs) pragmatic element. Listen, the bottom line, Candice, was that it was really the adherence to our process that led us to be able to generate that return in 2022 because it led us to own different. You know, I touched on Japan, obviously. I touched on our, our, 
you know, very small weighting to the US, not because of some of the things we've touched on, but just because of the bottom up process. So it was really the adherence to our process, I think, that allowed us to generate a significantly different return profile to a number of other people last year. I think the second thing is, you know, or a subordinate clause of that process is, you know, we're very much a numbers over narrative, as you've probably picked up so far. We, we believe a lot more in the numbers rather than the narrative about what the future is going to be. I mean, all value managers ultimately say the, the future is unknowable and therefore actually I'm going to defer to, to maths and the numbers. Um, so I think they were the two key philosophical things that allowed us to kind of um, generate a positive return for our investors last year. I think on a practical level, and I think we're going to get into this hopefully, you know, we have more than one lever of returns because of how we buy stocks, which in a a market where capital values were falling allowed us to more than compensate for that. So that was the first thing. So this second lever of returns that I'm sure we'll unpack. I think it's also fair to say, you know, the value benchmark last year was flat. Okay. So, you know, if you're a true to label value manager, even if you didn't add any value, you should have been about zero, right? I mean, if you just had a value ETF, you should have been about zero. So I think that's worth bearing in mind as well, because the reality is, is that about half the time we look cleverer than we actually are. And the other half, we're, we're cleverer than we kind of appear. You know, <laughs> the, world, the world moves around us in those kind of things, but actually we're just doing the same thing. So I think that's probably how I'd, I'd answer that. Yeah, and as you said, as we've teased out, we will get into your very unique investment process um, because when I first learned at this, I thought this is a really clever way of doing it. So we'll get into that, guys. Also, we'll be hearing some of Hugh's top sectors, thematics and key ideas uh, because we love to do that on Talk Money to Me. That's it. So if you're sitting on some cash at the moment and looking for some new investable ideas or a new fund to put into your portfolio, don't go anywhere. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back. Okay, so Hugh, turning to your investment process, can you explain to our listeners how you enter into a stock and why you've always done this implementation process? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Um, so after the sort of extensive fundamental bottom-up work where we've identified, you know, a company and a stock that, that we now want to own, it in every instance starts life as a put option, which think about that as a promise to own the stock typically in two months' time. Now, there's a couple of things in that. In return for making this promise, we can commit to buy the stock at a lower price than it's trading at at that moment in time. 
and we get paid an upfront fee or a premium in return for that promise. I think perhaps one of the easiest intuitive ways to think about it is that we are selling insurance on an event that we actually want to happen. We want to own the stock. We spend all our time bottom-up fundamental investors, but the implementation is allowing us this lower entry price and this upfront payment. Insurance is very, very profitable, you know? And so why do we do this? Because we want to get paid not only for the idiosyncratic risk of security selection, you know, is is Coca-Cola a good stock or is Seacom a good stock? But remember, when you put money into any investment market, be that credit, treasuries, equities, you're putting your capital at risk. And the things that drive that risk are inherently very difficult to forecast. And we've touched on, you know, the geopolitical backdrop, the um, monetary policy, inflation, debt levels, and so on. And the only way to get paid for taking that risk of putting your capital into any asset market is through this implementation process. And that's why we do it. I think there's a couple of practical reasons we do it as well, Felicity. We use the options implementation strategy to reduce risk. First and foremost, we're risk managers of other people's hard-won savings. You know, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. You know, so we're using this process to reduce risk. And it creates an alternative source of return because of that upfront payment, which in aggregate creates a much smoother journey and a greater certainty of outcome for, for the people who trust us with their money. And that's why we do it. Yeah. And I love that. Don't lose investors money and don't forget to lose, you know, out on that rule, right? Always keep that in the forefront. That's fantastic to hear. So we touched on it earlier. You are sitting on a lot of cash. So as a fund manager, that is quote unquote unusual. So and you're always looking. We know that. So let's squash your peers thinking that you're too cautious. So what sectors, themes and ideas of the global economy are looking the most compelling to you right now? And we'd love to hear some names of ideas if we can. Great. I'd love to talk about that. But before that, let's just step back to that point about, you know, how much cash and just to contextualise why that is and why it's yep. very different for, for alternative ways of managing money. So the reason we hold a lot of um, cash, you know, relative to our peers or some of the some of the alternatives that your listeners could could be invested in, is that unlike most other fund managers, we're able to take advantage of increased uncertainty because of that implementation process that I just described. We get paid more for doing the same thing when uncertainty rises, and the number of opportunities can rise very very quickly even if the price is exactly the same. If, you know, the, the uncertainty is referenced by the VIX in the global equity market, if a stock was trading 100 in the current VIX environment, we could commit to buy it at $96 and get a 15% annualised rate of return. If the VIX was trading at 50, we might be able to commit to do that at 92 and get paid a 18% annualised rate of return. So it changes very differently. So think about the third week of March 2020, the vast majority of people, I think, raised cash when, you know, you're in the height of the pandemic uncertainty. And this is a one in a hundred year event. They're fully invested. You know, they've got two or three percent of cash. And I think prudently raised cash to say, hey, we need to do the work to work out the range of possibilities. 
that's very different to what we were able to do on behalf of our clients at Talaria, where we could commit in a number of instances to buy stocks that were at prices 30 to 35% lower than they were trading in the third week of March and get a 25% or 20% plus annualized rate of return. So the cash is, is a real uh, opportunity driver in a way that actually a whole range of other strategies don't have that. So I think that's that's important to note. So we will always look like we have relatively higher cash. So, you know, April to November of 2020, that's been the lowest level of cash in each, mon- each one of those months over the last, say, five years. And that's very different um, to, to a whole range of other strategies. Um, in terms of your question about sectors and regions and names, listen, we're individual, as I said, bottom up. So it's very hard to sort of say sectors uh, in terms of new ideas. We've recently added a Japanese telco. Um, KDDI, so that's been one of the more recent additions to the fund in the in the third quarter. But I, I couldn't characterise it by one or the other. A couple of stocks have been starting to go a lot further through the investment process in the utility space because clearly that's had its worst start uh, to a year in 30 years. So no surprise that we're starting to get ideas to be socialised in in that sector. And regionally, it's kind of more about Japan and and kind of Europe, ex-UK. So, Hugh, what you said earlier about cash and the way that you build your portfolio, it seems like volatility really is somewhat of a friend to you at Talaria. We get paid more for doing the same thing when volatility rises. Yeah, and that's what we like to hear, really, as investors and holders of your fund. Uh, Now, the highest weighting in the fund right now is healthcare. It's about 26%. Now, healthcare as a sector this past year hasn't done all that well. So I guess why it's probably a little bit different to the way you build your portfolios because you're bottom up. up. But I mean, why are you long healthcare? Is there a really great high conviction name in this space in the portfolio? Obviously, value managers are always going to be getting bigger and bigger in things that have been out of favour over the last year, <laughs> right? By definition, you're, you're anti-momentum, right? I mean, you're taking advantage of people who are selling out because there's not much momentum. We found a number of individual opportunities that through our work are compelling. Now, mostly these are the mega cap pharmaceutical companies, Felicity. I think there's a couple of big picture things that are great. They virtually have no debt in aggregate. Now, clearly in a slowing growth environment, but high interest rates, that's that's tremendously um, positive because of the refinancing risk and also the risk of the spread of of corporate debt widening. So they they don't have any risk around that. They're spending huge amounts on research and development, which they have current patent protected cash flows, um, which we can model out. And then you can get a sense of uh, the difference between those cash flows, which are patent protected, and the current share price. And it gives you a sense about how the market is viewing the productivity of that research and development. So in the case of, you know, Roche, I'm just choosing one here, Swiss pharmaceutical giant, you know, the market's saying effectively that the value of the cash flows that are visible versus where the share price is trading at today, there's about a 65 billion Swiss franc value gap. Now, they're spending about 13.5 billion per annum of cash R&D spend. So they're saying that in five years, they're not really going to be able to generate a single dollar of return to shareholders on that $65 billion of research and development spend. And then what we've done is we've been able to go back and look over the last 15 or 20 years and say, well, what has been the experience of the research and development department bringing through new um, therapies and medicines? And 
you know, they've been getting over three times the revenue per dollar spent on research and development. So we sit there and say, well, listen, we've got no competitive advantage about which program is going to move through to actually produce a, a productive um, therapy that ultimately they'll, they'll get paid for. We can see that they only need one or two billion of that to hit. And actually, their historical rate is that they've got three times what they've spent in revenues. And yet the market's saying currently that they'll get zero on all 65 billion. And we find that a relatively compelling way to look at this, the individual names. And in fact, there's been four or five global pharmaceutical companies that are trading at significant discounts uh, in terms of their R&D productivity. Yeah, so the market really is missing that. I mean, there's been a lot of hype over this obesity drug as well. Have you ever been in Eli Lilly or Nova Nordisk? Neither of those have been stocks that have featured in the fund, no. Would you add them or you just think it's still hype? They don't, they don't um, come through our screen. Yeah. Yep. So it's just about the criteria and then we go and assess the individual opportunities on behalf of our clients. So at the end of the day, we're, we want to own the highest quality companies we can afford. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> you know, clearly Novo Nordisk is not one that has been through the screen because, you know, as you can imagine, the market is paying um, for what they perceive as to be a hugely lucrative and you know ever-growing market because of the anti-obesity drugs that they've developed. So a company that I hadn't heard of, and I'm going to guess a lot of our listeners maybe also are in this bucket, it falls within your top 10, uh, Redia. Have I said that right? It's Redia. I knew I would say it wrong. Redia. <laughs> Clearly don't know what it does. Electrical Spanish Transmission Company. Why do you like it? Tell us more about it. Yeah, thanks. Um, Redeo is a regulated utility, so it has a monopoly over electricity transmission in Spain, where it plays, you know, a critical role. I mean, it, it transports the, the electricity into to everything. So it builds, owns, and operates really the poles and wires that connect electricity generation assets. Think wind, solar, hydro, etc., to consumers. Um, businesses, industrial users, households. So the business has two important characteristics that are worth noting. Firstly, they take no risk in, in electricity generation or electricity retailing, okay? That's really volatile. They don't take any risk. It doesn't own or develop generation assets and is therefore immune to the boom and bust cycle that often plagues a relatively fragmented market. I think the second key thing is that they benefit from Spain's push to decarbonize. A larger and more sophisticated electricity grid is a key enabler for growth in renewable generation assets. You can imagine, you know, solar and, and wind, they surge and they come in and out, very different to a, a coal-fired plant, for example, that is just producing a very constant level of, of generation. So a much more sophisticated grid is required. Also, of course, New wind and solar farms are, are often located in fairly remote areas or, or places that haven't had a sophisticated grid historically. Obviously, necessitates the building of, of new transmission lines. And you've got this sustained push for electrifying heating and transport, which will drive demand, um, which in turn requires an even bigger expansion of the grid. So they're really the two key things. So as a result, Redea's asset base, it's a regulated asset base. You know, the regulator tells them what, what rate of return they can get. But the asset base will grow at least 4% compound to 2030. So that's not a forecast. That's just a mandate. That's a, that's a piece of legislation by the Spanish government. 
So I think to summarise, obviously, like any fund manager, you can just talk all day about your own stocks. Um, uh, I mean, we love it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very kind of you. I don't find I get very much interest at home when I start talking about the benefits of Rodea. Um, but uh, listen, so I think to summarise, I'd say you've got a growth in the asset base. You've got a high dividend. Um, so we're getting paid along the way. And you've got a really good potential for a positive regulatory rethink as interest rates are significantly higher than the time of the last regulatory review. So these take place every five years. So remember, you know, interest rates at zero, the regulator says, well, what kind of rate of return should I allow you to get? I mean, if if debt is zero and you're able to access debt markets at one or two percent, I'm going to give you a five and a half percent regulated rate of return. Well, now that interest rates are four and a half, they have an opportunity to be able to earn a much greater absolute kind of return as well. So that's that's the three key reasons that we hold it in the fund. Yeah, so basically growth, a good high dividend um, and some interesting upcoming catalysts. Uh, so Rodea, one for your watch list. Now, in terms of downside protection, market volatility, I mean, you've kind of touched on how you manage risk there. But for our listeners' benefit, can you run us through the fund's median downside deviation and average? average downside figures in comparison to your benchmark? Yes, absolutely. You know, so to going back to, uh, you know, the, the coming out of the GFC, think about that time period in terms of the, you know, unit trust that, that um, people can have a look at. The downside capture of the fund has been about 34%. So that means that when the market goes down, we capture about 34% of that decline. So it's a very defensive way of managing money. And that's Great during those periods of, you know, increased uncertainty and, and no one likes to lose money. We know that psychologically, you know, I'm sure you in the behavioural kind of thing, losing $10 and making $10 has vastly different implications to people's well sense of well-being. So that's a great thing as you lose less while the market goes down. The reason that it really matters, though, of course, is that you've got more money working for you in periods where the market starts to go up. That's actually why it matters to lose less when the market goes down. So, you know, to your point about last year, you know, the market, whatever, was down double digit. You know, we started the year on behalf of our investors with $108.50 as opposed to starting with, you know, $87.50. And that's why it matters. So even if you go up only 10% this year and the market does 20, you're still well ahead. And that's the first key thing in terms of that downside capture. In terms of those volatility characteristics, you know, I touched on the fact that we have a much greater certainty of return. You know, the hard numbers are we're about, it's about 270 basis points lower volatility than the benchmark. That might not resonate with a lot of listeners. What does that mean in practical terms? It means you're nearly five times more likely to suffer a 5% or greater drawdown in your savings in the benchmark than you are in Telaria. That is fantastic to run through that, Hugh. Thank you so much for that. I just want to quickly go back to what we talked about earlier, you, you know, and I think it's potentially going to be lost for our listeners. So as you said earlier, economies and central banks are running the highest level of debts in comparison um, to what we've seen since really the end of World War II. That's pretty confronting. So I want to ask you again a roundabout way of saying, you know, the days of just throwing money in index and throwing money at growth is is pretty much coming to an end. That's what we feel. So you've got to be more selective, more bottom up and very much it's a stock pickers market um, because it's going to just be tougher and tougher for earnings to be as high as they have been moving forward. I think I would agree with that. I think there's a couple of things on the inflationary side. 
Well, first off, I think all the all the people who've trusted us with their money, and as I said, we work on behalf of them, they're very much outcomes-based. So they're actually interested in, hey, how does this help in the portfolio context to deliver the outcomes that I require, be that a charity and a foundation or be it my mum, you know, who's 80 and in retirement who wants to go on a caravan holiday and know that that's going to, you know, she's got her three weeks and she wants to um, take the grandkids out for dinner, you know, on their birthdays and that kind of thing. So they're all very outcomes. Very descriptive. <laughs> but they're very outcomes focused. Um, I think, you know, one of the huge developments off the course of my career has clearly been the rise of passive, you know, and this means that you are having, you know, around 60 cents in the dollar has been going into passive over the last decade. $6 out of every 10 has been a price insensitive buyer of a whole range of assets, you know, and, and if you have a look in the Russell Growth 1000 index, you know, Microsoft's, you know, 11.5% of that. So for every $10, $1.1 goes into Microsoft, irrespective of the price, irrespective of the value. And I think that that's a, that's a big potential risk on the government debt side. And this is why. Ultimately, we're not going to be able to grow our way out of the very large debt levels. I mean, Liz Trust tried that for about six weeks in the UK and nearly you know, made the, the UK pension system bust. We're not going to be in a situation where we, we're past austerity. You know, from a political perspective, that was tried after the GFC and and now all governments have really embraced bigger government, be that left or right. I mean, you think about the Republicans or the Democrats in the US, no one's talking about reducing the fiscal deficit into, into an election year. I mean, it's a pretty big change from even 10 years ago. And therefore, what's going to have to happen is that government debt is ultimately not going to be able to give people a real return. They're going to have to slowly keep the rate of return on government debt below kind of inflation. And how you do that is through regulation and macro prudential. So I think in Australia in the mid-70s, they brought the Australia Savings Bond number one, which there was a huge clamour for that. It was, you know, it was hugely oversubscribed. And yet the average investor got about 60 basis points of real return subsequently over 10, 15 years. I mean, this is exactly what you're talking about. Now, because capital is so mobile, when that happens, they're going to have to start controlling where money can move. What I'm saying is that financial repression is basically taking money from savers and giving it to the debtors. And in this case, the debtor is the government. And therefore, a whole range of saving institutions are going to be forced to hold government securities that they don't want to hold. Think about in Australia in October last year, where the, the Labor government was proposing that the super funds, you know, perhaps would have to fund social housing. Yes, that's right. Well, hang on. You want us, you know, you want us to generate a return. There's not a, a return on social housing. You know, this is people's retirement. That's exactly the kind of thing that we're, um, I'm talking about. And so when that happens, these very large savings institutions will have to liquidate some of their equities relative to, to buy more bonds. And, of course, that will come out of a whole range of passive instruments and then for the first time we'll see price insensitive sellers and someone like Talaria, you know, the world isn't really, you know, values had a terrible run as a, as a factor, particularly over the last six or seven years, with the exception of last year. You know, we're not, we're not buyers 5% down in, in NVIDIA, right? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. yeah. these things can go a long way the other side. So I think that's the first thing. So people should be cognizant of that, that concentration risk and the potential that, huge pools of capital may well have to sell equities at some point 
um, to rebalance their portfolios driven by regulatory change to service the levels of government debt. Now, that's a fairly complicated answer, but I think that's one thing that answers what you're talking about. And the other is simply if it's higher inflation, you know, that's a very different environment. You know, if you think that the odds of a more inflationary environment rather than compared to the last 20 years um, is just higher, you know, just put a probability, you don't have to forecast, then you have to also change the asset mix in your savings pool to reflect that, that change of probability. So people would have to own different in that environment. You know, and that's uh, a lot more about asset-intensive businesses. I think Japan clearly has a, a whole, you know, structural interesting story from that perspective. You know, companies which have very, very strong balance sheets or have a lot of cash on them in a higher inflation environment are relatively asset-intensive. So, you know, think manufacturing and, and so on, where in a higher inflation environment they get two benefits, the replacement costs of the assets rises. But also, you know, broadly, these are more price takers than price makers. And therefore, higher on the margin inflation environment allows them to put through a little bit of pricing, which all drops through to what are fairly operationally geared businesses. So that would be the kind of thing that I'm talking about, where people need to think about different assets. And then the third key thing, because of the starting valuations and because of, um, you know, on that on the margin inflation you need to have a much more balanced understanding of the total return between the capital component and the income component. So the last decade has seen the highest proportion of total return come from the capital component of any decade. Well, you know, I mean, I've been saying to, to a few people in the team, you know, the ancient Mesopotamians understood the difference between owning a piece of land and, and the value of growing a cucumber. Or as it seems over the last decade, everyone's sort of forgotten that there's a value in growing the cucumber. And I think that that will change to become more balanced. Absolutely. And I think what you're also really saying, so to summarise that answer to that question, I mean, rather than looking at a positive outlook for global equities, you're really looking at positive and being optimistic for certain companies in the global investment market. I like the way that you look at that. Yeah, I'd describe the investment team as, you know, trying to remain realistic and, and follow the numbers and our process, really. Individually, I'm a very optimistic person. I don't want to put off anybody. That I... Oh, look, so am I. So am I. I'm always bullish. But <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's just, uh, you know, it, like I said at the start, right, at the end of the last millennium, you know, we were sort of not dissimilar, albeit there was a lot of things that were much, much cheaper beneath the surface at, you know, end of the last millennium at, at levels of kind of valuation broadly commensurate with today at the index level, and you got 6.5%, you know, including dividends, right? So about 40% of that would have been from the dividend. You did about 4% per annum from the capital component. You know, is that optimistic, realistic? You know, and some would say that that's, that's wildly optimistic that you're going to get 6.5% over the next decade. I mean, there's plenty of commentators who are a lot more pessimistic. You know, if you have a look at some of the well-followed you know, asset class forecasts from the likes of GMO and so on. I mean, they're a lot, lot lower than that. Yeah, I mean, it's really a bit of, I guess, time in the market as well. And like you said, people do forget the dividend component and that is something that's really important, um, especially to Aussie investors. Now, to end our chat, can you leave us with three companies that you would buy and hold for the next three years and a brief reason why? Do you know, I can't, Felicity. Um, the, question doesn't, <laughs> no, the question doesn't really resonate. You know, it all comes down to the price one is being asked to pay for. You know, for for a long stream, a long term stream of prudently appraised and assessed cash flows. And if the market decides to pay what we think is the fair value for that in six weeks, then 
we will sell that on behalf of our investors. And if it's still not adequately paid for by the market or recognised in three years, then we'll still hold it. That's a great answer. Well, thank you so much, Hugh, for joining us here on Talk Money to Me. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and um, I look forward to doing it again. Wow, and that's a wrap. Felicity, I really took a few key takeaways from our conversation with Hugh today. You know, for me, like one of the greatest quotes that I wrote down when he was talking was price takers matter more than price makers. I think that really stands out with this volatility we're seeing in the market, you know, and the team with over 125 years experience, they really do know their stuff. And for our podcast listeners, because we obviously don't put this on YouTube, maybe we'll do that one day. They wouldn't have been able to see what we could see behind Hugh. The slogan was certainty empowers you, which I just really love. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of just highlights that they don't get caught up in the FOMO of the market that some potential funds do and some investors do. I really like that it's a high conviction approach. And I really like that they're combining the fundamental research and stock implementation via an options overlay, really to get that consistent income generation, capital appreciation, and most importantly, capital preservation. And I think one last thing to highlight here is if you look at their global fund, as of the end of September, it's actually returned 7.53% per annum since inception, which dates back to 2008. If you want to learn more about Talaria and their funds, you can actually head to their website, which is www.talariacapital.com.au. Well said, Felicity. And I guess when you do head over there, you'll really see that they take their job of not only preserving, growing, but producing income for their investors in the fund very seriously. One last stat just to round us off, you know, I guess what really also stood out to us and what Hugh was talking about. Since World War II, the Fed has tightened interest rates 13 times and a recession has followed 10 of those times. So let that sink in. (laughs) Let that sink in. So I guess you know, let's not be afraid of volatility. And like he was saying, just really know the company well that you want to get into. It is a stock pickers market. And, you know, if you can get capital growth and income along the way, well, you're having a cake and eating it too, which we just love. So we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Sharon Partners, please note our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, go out and seek your own professional advice before you make any of your investment and financial decisions. And lastly, we're chatting on the facts known at the time, which is the 25th of October. 2023. That's it. And make sure you follow us on at Talk Money to Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And remember, if you've got any questions or you want to reach out to us, please contact us, tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equity makes me. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.